0: This episode of She Explores is sponsored by Subaru and the 2018 Subaru Crosstrek. Stay tuned for later in the episode when we meet photographer Jules Davies, owner of a 2004 Subaru Forester. Buying a new car means having a lot of questions. Get your questions answered firsthand by real Subaru
1: owners at MeetAnOwner.com. I'm Gail Straub, and you're listening to She Explores. There's
2: just, there's this huge hole in in outdoor literature, and there's so much that can go in there, but man is it gaping.
3: <laughs> you know, I started the book club because I wanted
1: people to read with. You just heard the voices of Shantae Salibert and Charlotte Austin. Charlotte is the founder of Adventure Groups, an online book club you can find on Facebook. I wanted to talk with Charlotte and Shantae because I wanted to bring a book club to life. Why? Well, as I somewhat awkwardly said to them. I, I appreciate that sentiment, though, around the wanting to have other people to talk about a book with, like, while you're reading it. Because it does feel a little bit lonely sometimes. Like, I always go to my boyfriend and I'm like, can you please, please read this? And there's something about imploring someone to read a book that doesn't make them want to read it. Oh, totally. Totally. <laughs>
2: That's so true.
1: The three of us read the same book, All That Glitters by Margot Talbot. What we found, though, is that a book is often just a jumping-off point for other topics that we care about. So don't fear, I'm not imploring you to read this book. I edited the episode so you don't have to read it in order to follow along. For the three of us, All That Glitters brought up questions of gender roles in the outdoors and adventure narratives— as well as the outdoors' role in healing and mental health issues. And over the next 40 or so minutes, we discuss this together. But first, let's meet Charlotte and Shantae. Charlotte, could you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Um, My name is Charlotte
3: Austin. Uh, I live in Seattle, Washington, and I'm an international mountain guide. Uh, So I work about six months of the year in the field guiding the big mountains of the world. In the other half of the year, I work as a freelance travel and adventure writer. And I'm also the founder and
1: champion of this club, Adventure Grapes. So Charlotte is a mountain guide, a writer, and the founder of the online book club, Adventure Grapes. She'll explain its origins, but first, let's meet Shantae. All
2: right, well, hello. I am Shantae Salaber, and I, I live in LA, um, which I think is always surprising to people when they find out how, quote, outdoorsy I am. Uh, but I will defend the outdoorsiness of Southern California to my death, uh, in <laughs> fact. <laughs> So I'm a full-time freelance writer. I write primarily about all things, again, quote, outdoors, which would include, you know, adventure sports and athletes, environmental issues, um, and sort of the, the way humans relate to the natural world is, is my favorite thing to write about. And uh, I actually wrote and photographed a rather hefty guidebook to the first approximately 942.5 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail, which just came out in November. Which is part of the reason why I will defend Southern California's outdoor access to my death. <laughs> uh, but I also volunteer quite a bit here in Southern California, a lot of the time with the Sierra Club. I am an instructor for a 10-week backpacking and outdoor skill class called the Wilderness Travel Course, which is actually going on right now. We just got back from Joshua Tree where we we did navigation and we taught rock scrambling and we took the students up a third class peak and it was awesome.
1: So cool. Congratulations. Thanks. Shantae is a writer and an outdoor instructor, and both of these women are avid readers. I asked Charlotte what kind of reading she gravitates towards.
3: Man, you know, when I started climbing and guiding and really getting into the outdoors, I, of course, did that thing where you devour all the books by, you know, I read like Steph Davis' High Infatuation and Bree Lowen's Pickets and Dead Men. And I really went deep into that sort of in my early 20s, that sort of women mountain um, reading. And then honestly, for a lot of the last decade, I got a little bit disillusioned with that. First of all, I wasn't able to find voices that I really, um, or it was hard. I shouldn't say I wasn't able to, but it was hard to find voices that talked about mountains in the way that they felt to me, the role they were playing for my life and my work and my career. And honestly, you know, when you're living and working in the mountains, six, eight, nine months a year, you don't necessarily want to be reading about those things on your off time. So for a while, I started. The pendulum swung the other way, and I went into like you know, serial killer fiction. I don't know, fun stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> don't knock it. Uh, <laughs> um, and so I I started wanted to get back into it, particularly because I'm writing a lot about mountains, and so I wanted to engage in that literary community more and have a finger more on the pulse of the kinds of stories that are being told. It was really hard for me to find books with a particularly a female narrative involving the outdoors that weren't sort of the Cheryl Strayed narrative, right? And she's fine, but I'm I'm pretty tired of the language of, you know, I was broken, so I went and did something hard, and now I'm whole.
1: A quick note here. Charlotte is referring to Cheryl Strayed's now-famous book, Wild, in which she hikes a portion of the PCT after a turbulent period in her 20s. On a personal level, I loved Wild for its honest writing, and it's a treasured book by many. In the context of this conversation... Think of it as an archetype that had a cascade effect on other through hiking and outdoor memoirs like that narrative
3: is uniquely female and it's uniquely i don't want to say passive because that's judgy, but it's it's very it's one specific narrative, and I think that there's a huge void in those stories for other kinds of stories about women outside. so I was invited to join a different Facebook reading group called Novel Grapes, which was started by a woman named jackie Carr and it's a cool group, but it's like more self-help focused. And so I wanted sort of a more adventurous group. And so I, I was like, asked some friends, I was like, Hey, do you guys want to like drink wine and read about adventure? And they were like, yeah. And, um, so it sort of
1: mushroomed. And now there's a whole bunch of people doing it. So Adventure Grapes has over 1200 members in its Facebook group. Every month Charlotte chooses a different book and often has a guest moderator field questions. For February, the book was All That Glitters, and the moderator was Shantae. It's become an active community where people all read and discover the same adventure book and discuss themes, which means you always know there's someone reading along with you. And it's a lot of fun.
3: You know, it's hard to look at mountaineering literature, and particularly American mountaineering literature, without, to me, understanding sort of the language of conquest that
1: has come with our tradition. The language of conquest and mountaineering and adventure literature came up quickly in our conversation. And I should say that language came up in the adventure narrative context, and for the purposes of this conversation, we talk about it as such. Of course, its origins lie in military conquest and bring to mind violence and subjugation and colonialism. All the more reason for us to want to move beyond that language in the books that we read. But I'm getting ahead of our conversation here. Charlotte and Shantae have a unique perspective as mountaineering and outdoor guides. Here's Charlotte. American mountaineering is
3: very, for the last, I don't know, 150 years, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to conquer the mountain. We're going to tame the wilderness, right? And I find that really artificial, you know, until the Industrial Revolution, we were all outside all the time. (laughs) And then the Industrial Revolution happened and we were all inside and it became sort of this higher class pursuit, you know, for the elite to go outside and do the sort of roosevelt we're going to recreate outside and get our fresh air. You know, you look at American climbing and American relationships to wilderness and there's always these the language is like we're going to tame it, we're going to conquer it, we're going to plant our flag on the top. When I'm guiding I hear people say sometimes like we're going to tap this bitch, we're going to like wrestle her into submission. I just find that really artificial. I mean, who's who's conquering a mountain? There's that famous quote, it's not the mountain we conquer but ourselves and I think um, it's just so easy to project a lot of things on these pointy pieces of rock and I think mountains are beautiful and enigmatic and metaphorical but it's a privilege to go climb them. it's a construct it's a, a self-chosen journey and i uh, so I don't have like a one sentence phrase on how to how I think we should talk about them but I think it's often a place people go to test themselves or to find something or to search for something or rub up against something gritty but i I really, at a fundamental level, I'm pretty uncomfortable with the way we talk about, well, I've conquered this, so now I can go do something else, you know?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, I even look back to this past weekend taking some of these students who are all adults, by the way, just to give you that context, but many of whom have never done anything like, you know, scrambling, rock movement, things like that. So this is a completely foreign experience for them. And a lot of people are terrified. They're super scared yeah. about this. You know, there's exposure, there's moves, there's will my body do this. And you get to the top and it's, it's fascinating watching. There's relief on some of their faces because they haven't yet thought about the fact that they have to go down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's that feeling of, of conquering something. And I try to talk to people not about the mountain as this sort of, you know, look what you did on this mountain but look at what's going on inside you right now what are you feeling in this moment that's what's important here is how and then how do you take this experience what you've done and extrapolate that to your life and it's not about that mountain it's not about that peak we just went up it's about what's happening inside of you at this moment so that's kind of how I think about it and I'm totally on board I I really hate the language of conquest when we talk about the natural world I find it really reprehensible
1: so so would you say like is the opposite side of that pendulum swing is that the wild Cheryl Strayed narrative <laughs> or not like we're
2: <laughs> oh man Yes, in some regards, but that's, that's not the only narrative we have in our relationships with the outdoors. And I, you know, I completely agree that I find a lot lacking when I, when I search for female oriented or, you know, narratives about the outdoors is that there's this one story that's being told. And, and, you know, when we start talking about all the glitters, it's, this is some of my apprehension in this story as well, but there is that idea that, right, exactly the complete opposite side that conquering your your internal demons so to speak or whatnot (laughs) is that what's happening but it's not the only story those aren't the only two ways we relate to the mountains or to the desert or to the forest or to the the rivers and the oceans there's myriad experiences of how humans relate to the earth and to the air
3: and to the sea it's we limit ourselves when we
2: just talk about it in those binaries I think
3: I agree with that and I also think you know it's interesting for me because my the parts of my life overlap a lot and so as a mountain guide I'm you know, most of my coworkers are men, most of my clients are men. And I, I certainly share your feeling, Shantae, of like, well, what is this mountain to you? And what are you, what's the process and what are you noticing inside yourself? And that's also not necessarily language that's um, going to make me a more effective leader to a group of like 45-year-old CEOs. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I think they may need it or I might, you know. Um, so I've had to learn to try to get to that end result in a different way. And I'm I'm honestly jealous, like you were talking about that. I was like, man, that sounds like a great, I would love to be able to say that to people. That's awesome. I really respect that and admire it. But one of the other ways that I sort of try to approach that same goal from a different inroad might be, you know, I talk to a group and I say, let's clearly define our goals here. Obviously, safety is a huge one. But one of the things I talk about and I've started talking about to my groups that I take outside is, um, you know, often people come to these places because they demand your best self, I think. There's something really beautiful about going into a place and saying, "Okay, this is dangerous and scary and pushing my limits and um you know, there's this sort of pure beautiful, wonderful way to ask yourself to show up and bring the best you have." And sometimes that resonates in a way that doesn't let people put me into the narrative of like, "Well, the dude guides just want to summit and the female guides want to talk about their feelings," you know? <laughs> Cuz I I struggle with that too. Like I I also love summits, <laughs> you know, but sure,
2: yeah,
1: there's a lot of parts of that, so it's deliciously complex, you know <laughs> <laughs> do do you either of you have any adventure narratives that come to mind that don't that kind of land somewhere in between that are striking a chord with you ooh. <laughs>
2: dead silence. You know, it's interesting. Have either of you read, so I I have a constantly full nightstand of books that are like, you know, I'm in the middle of them, depending on my mood. I don't know if you do this, but one of the books I picked up, one of my favorite things to do when I'm looking for books, I love going to a used bookstore, thrift store, anywhere, and just looking to see what's there and what sort of calls out to me in that moment. I read a lot of different kinds of books, but one I just recently picked up that I have not started yet is Savage Summit by Jennifer Jordan. It's, you know, the story of the first, I think it's five women to summit K2. And I'm curious, have either of you read that book? I have.
1: Yeah,
3: I have not.
2: Does, does that fall under the conquering narrative?
3: <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. And I think a similar narrative is um, a lot of Arlene Bloom's writing.
2: Yes, I was going to say Annapurna would be one that comes to mind, but, you know, of course, there's there's conflicts in that narrative as well when you think about, right. you know, the women's role with the folks over in the Sherpa folks, and there's complications there, too. I had a really interesting conversation with Katie Ives, the editor-in-chief of Alpinist, about that particular book, and she wrote a, a really incredibly researched piece for outside a few months back on that expedition and sort of the resonance of it many years later but
3: she actually interviewed me that for that same piece too which is awesome yeah oh yeah (laughs) awesome yeah um anyway that's a great book and I think Arlene Bloom does manage to acknowledge some of the struggles that are true to all climbers you know without falling into the conquest Mm -hmm. narrative or the let's just talk all about our feelings narrative I think there's yeah
2: Yeah, I want more of that. (laughs) Yeah, there's just there's this huge hole in in outdoor literature, and there's so much that can go in
1: there, but man, is it gaping. (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds like that hole is across the gender spectrum too.
3: Yeah, I think I don't know, and I don't know why I'm so troubled by this narrative of women who feel broken or abused or struggle with this problem and feel like they have to justify embarking on a journey and then a lot of times the end of their journey is like cool I did that now I get it now I can go have kids <laughs> <laughs> um, and as like a 30 year old woman who's um, working in the outdoor industry and thinking very much about how I can maybe incorporate a family into my world I mean that's that's really troubling and I really crave other kinds of narratives about that but I I could name like 10 books where it's like okay well I'm doing this hard thing I did it. Now I can, like, be done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I'm fixed.
1: We introduce all that glitters and talk about how who we recreate in the outdoors with matters after a word from our sponsor, Subaru. This episode
0: of She Explores is sponsored by Subaru and the 2018 Subaru Crosstrek. Jules Davies is a professional photographer and Subaru owner. Recently, Jules recounted a photo shoot she drove to in Yosemite, where things didn't go quite as planned. We were planning on backpacking for six days. (laughs) And we get to the trailhead pretty late, and we get our bags packed, and you have to have bear canisters in Yosemite. So our bags were way too heavy and overpacked, and we were staring up at this ominous snow cloud it was going to be the first snow of the year in Yosemite and we're standing at the trailhead saying "Mm, what if just a thought what if we go to the hot springs just outside of Yosemite and we come back in two days when the snow passes and we backpack then we just went with the flow we put our packs in the car and we drove up to Wild Willy's hot springs it just feels like an adventure car you look at it, and you're like, yep, that person goes places, and they fill it up with stuff, and they sleep outside. It's a lifestyle. Want to meet more owners and get your questions answered? Head to meet Um, All
2: right, All the Glitters by Margot Talbot. <laughs> <laughs> a book report by Shantae. Um, <laughs> so what we have here, it's a pretty slim volume. its uh, I read this thing very, very quickly. And it's the story of Margot who grows up in Canada. She's got, from a very young age, sort of a fractured relationship with her family. She finds substances quite early on. She also finds, from what I can tell, the comforts that having a physical relationship with a man provide her. And that's a theme that kind of comes up over and over and over in the book. But her substance abuse gets her to a point where, you know, she runs afoul of the law and there's drug dealing and international smuggling and all this stuff happening. But during all of this, she sort of reaches this connection with the outdoors through kind of what really is born out of this experience in Jasper where she goes ice climbing for the first time and she draws a lot of parallels and you know I'm sure we'll get into some of this but her her language is very precise in how she talks about her inner state during all of this and she draws a lot of parallels to how she feels outdoors versus how she's felt in other times in her life. And then suddenly she is an amazing climber, and suddenly she's doing well. <laughs> That's, that was
1: the book <laughs> yeah um it's it's tough to know where to start in talking about it. Um, I mean, I think I guess the easy place to start is her childhood. A little more information for you here. Margot's mom actively preferred her brothers over her sisters. And Margot and her two sisters were neglected as a result. Reading this made us think about both gender roles and families and how a lack of role models can follow us throughout our lives. Well, yeah.
2: One of the things I noticed early on in the book is that Margot kind of references, she references specifically, um, the thing that she really references is this piece in a magazine about Catherine Hepburn and how Catherine Hepburn sort of wished to have the freedom that she would have living as a man. And of course, if you're familiar with Catherine Hepburn, you know, she wore pantsuits is a very specific statement and things like that. But then you look at some of the things that Margot does. She becomes, uh, she works in construction. She does trail crew work. She drinks very heavily, things like this. Some of these things might be seen as stereotypically male behaviors. But she talks about this experience of masculinity as one being parallel to being, having freedom. And it really struck me. And I wondered if it was a generational thing, um, because I I think Margot is a bit older than all of us on this call. And I wonder if that's something that, you know, because there were not female role models that did many of the things that she aspired to, that she figured, all right, well, women are kind of stuck in these roles. But look at men, they can kind of do whatever they want. I want that. So it was just interesting to me how she drew that parallel between masculinity and freedom Mm -hmm. and didn't see that as an option to pursue femininity and freedom or being a woman and feeling free. And, you know, I was just curious how that, you know, played out throughout the narrative and throughout her life. I wonder, you know, part of me almost wonders, like, does she still look at that now and identify with that? Or does she now realize that, you know, that sort of freedom is not gender specific?
1: Yeah, I I also wondered, reading it, whether that really directly related to the way her mother treated her. And I also wondered, I I wondered why her mother treated her that way. Like, why her mother was so preferential to the boys. I mean, I have a hard time imagining
3: a situation where the mother would treat her this way if there wasn't abuse or mental illness or some combination of both, Mm. right? Mm. Um, I mean, I think the third possibility is that she's just... Really unkind or really cruel, and I, I would almost, I don't know, maybe sort of almost lump that in with, a form of, mental illness. I'm super unqualified to talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't want to go too deep into that, but I, I see. You know, a lot of the time, I think men are taught from a really young age that they have autonomy over their bodies. Mm. Their bodies are theirs. The consequences of their decisions are theirs. It's a much purer and much, much more direct. Relationship with their bodies, mm-hmm. and I see this in the way men and women are outside all the time. You know, men are taught to use their bodies as tools first and foremost. Men are taught to take up space physically. You know, men are taught to. Well, I don't know. I don't want to cheapen the complications of that relationship either. But I, I, I shouldn't compare. I think women have complicated relationships with their bodies, and I, um, I frequently see women who are discovering the outdoors for the first time having to really reevaluate their relationship with their bodies. And for a lot of people, that's sort of an act of you know reclaiming. And so I, I was not surprised to see that Margot, as the narrator here, didn't feel like she had control over her situation. You know, in the outdoors is a place where you have direct control over your situation.
1: It definitely makes a lot of sense. I mean, it makes me think about some of our thoughts and some of the comments in the Facebook group. People really did corroborate that feeling of or their own experience of The men introducing them to outdoor spaces Mm -hmm. and someone introducing you to something new comes with like a level of confidence and a confidence in like what your body can do.
2: Well, it's interesting. Like, I think back, and again, my experience, quote, guiding or leading people outdoors is very different from Charlotte's. She's, you know, I'm a volunteer. I do mostly backpacking, you know, off trail, maybe third class. But the experience of watching people doubt themselves, it is. Absolutely, 100%, in my experience doing this, has always it's always women. And what happened on a trip I led this summer, we were climbing a peak in the Sierra, and it was a pretty off-trail trip and, you know, some you know, challenging terrain, and what happened is the group naturally split in half. There were some taller folks, all men in the front, and they were all very fast walkers. They were very competitive with each other, and in the back, it was mostly women, and many of them hap- just happened to be shorter women. And one of the women came up to me during the trip and she said, you know, I just don't know if backpacking is for me. Look how slow I am. And I said, you're not slow at all. You're walking a pace that's correct for you. You're doing what your body wants to do. Are you, you know, not thinking about your pace? Are you enjoying being out here? Do you like the feeling of your body moving in this space? Like, you know, don't compare yourself to the the other half of the group up there that's taller, faster, more competitive. What are you experiencing right now? And it's something that comes up over and over and over in these spaces where I see that the women are very harsh judges of themselves and their bodies and their limitations. But then the flip side is that I've also seen... Both men and women celebrate what they didn't realize they could do like this past in a Joshua Tree there was this woman who was you know we were guiding her up the final shoot and you have to do some slightly exposed moves and she just had the biggest grin on her face and she got to the top and I could see that she had tears in her eyes and she was like she just whooped with joy because she she's like I didn't realize I could do that and she learned something about her body but also about you know I suppose her her mind as well in that moment
1: In the book, Margot was taught how to ice climb by a boyfriend. She loved ice climbing but developed a much deeper love when she started climbing with her friend Karen. Here's a couple of quotes from the book quote, Karen told me about a book she had read by Arlene Bloom, who said that the best way for a woman to become a better climber was to climb with other women. End quote. A few paragraphs later, Margot writes after receiving praise from Karen quote, I was pleased and surprised. Because I had never been complimented on my ice climbing before. I felt supported, as if my lead meant as much to Karen as her own would have. End quote. Margot felt a feeling of relief climbing with another woman. I was curious whether Charlotte and Chante's experiences were similar, especially guiding groups. Have you, either of you, guided all, all female or all, like, women trips? Yes. Yes, I have. Do you, Do you notice like a difference in the way people interact? A difference that might corroborate what Margot says in the book about her experiences with Karen. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Yes,
2: <laughs> I mean I <laughs> certainly
3: do, and I. Um, this is complicated terrain for me because, and I I should clarify that my job is pretty different than like outdoor education or different kinds of work in the outdoors. You know, I'm a I'm a guide who's taught that. You know, my job is when I'm working for my, the company that employs me, it's my job to get the group to the summit whenever it's safe to do so, right? Mm-hmm. And often that's easier than sort of like holding space for and having the conversations around some of the deeper stuff that comes up in all women's groups. Yeah, And I feel like a bad feminist for saying that, but it's true because it's really important, valuable work. And it's also, it's different than just trying to line things up to get a group to the summit safely but you know holding space and sort of trying to create an opportunity for people to really dig deeply into those things is it takes a much different kind of energy for me and it's awesome and I think it's probably more important it is more important I think
1: holding space for that conversation is also time consuming if if you're thinking in terms of safety right totally yeah
3: and I, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm already like making disclaimers on that statement. Cause I, I work with, you know, a huge number of women who just crush it and who naturally just come into these situations and are super well-prepared and are honest about their abilities with themselves and with me and with the group and, you know, have these more emotional discoveries along the way. Certainly if you have a group of women, there's a lot more verbal processing that happens and that's mm-hmm. beautiful and super important. And I mean, it's wonderful to be a part of, but it's, it is, it's much more time consuming and, and tiring in a different way.
2: It's true, but and you know, and it's interesting, and I don't think you have to place judgment on how you feel about that. I've co-led an all women group to summit a 13,000 foot peak in the Sierra, and it was a very different ex- you know experience than this summer where I was one of two women leading a group of men, all men, up to a summit. Both of the experiences were absolutely fantastic. I had a wonderful time during both experiences, but they were very different in many ways. It doesn't mean I didn't process things with some of the men that I was out there with. Some of them wanted to process some things, but it was a different kind of processing. And, you know, it is interesting. And I wonder, again, thinking back to the idea of some things maybe being generational, I've got probably almost 10 years on you. And I'm thinking like the things that I did and didn't see growing up that now I see and that you know, it might color my perception of how I spend time with people in the mountains and, and the conversations I do have and the work I do. That might be different for somebody who already came up in an environment where we were starting to see more women taking leadership roles outdoors and things like that. So I think that sort of stuff has a bearing on how we view, you know, our relationships to the outdoor, outdoors, our relationship with the people we spend time with outdoors, and and all of this stuff kind of wrapped around, you know, screwed up gender roles and all of that.
1: <laughs> Yeah, and Margot probably has 10 years on you, right, Shantae? Right, right. Yeah, I would think so. Her relationship with Karen seemed almost revolutionary for her. Mm-hmm. I, I think that touched on an interesting thing, which
3: was, you know, a lot of women talk about having a hard time finding mentors, female mentors. Um, and the vast majority of the women that I know who started climbing were taught by a boyfriend.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, yeah, I think... Most women also, I know, who are are good, remember the first time they were in an equal partnership, you know, where they were expected to take half the leads and make half the decisions and sort of own half the consequences of anything. And so, I mean, I I loved reading about that friendship, and I also was totally unsurprised by it.
1: Mm -hmm. Did you have male mentors? Oh, yeah. I mean, I learned to climb with dudes I was
3: dating. (laughs) Um, I also didn't necessarily seek out female climbing partners early on. I don't want to poo-poo like climbing with somebody you're dating that's really fun and it's pretty natural you know there's a lot of trips involved a lot of it's really engrossing and committing and it's a naturally intimate relationship right I think there's a reason a lot of people end up romantic with their climbing partners but I I certainly think I would have progressed faster and in a more honestly a healthier way if I had known or had the self-awareness to seek out female climbing partners earlier
1: why do you say healthier um, you know,
3: I was, I was young. I was like in my late teens and early twenties and I was, you know, there's a natural sort of deference to somebody you're dating who happens to be really good at a dangerous sport. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, you don't learn as fast if somebody else is making all the hard calls. Um, mm-hmm. and you're able to go climb harder things cause you've got a rope gun, but you're also not just getting up a hard route is pretty different than taking full ownership or, a full 50% of ownership of a more moderate route, right? Those are different experiences.
1: Yeah. And, and Margot was, when you said different deferential, it made me think about her and like her, like almost seemed like almost like verbally abusive relationship that she had with that guy that taught her how to climb.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I really struggled with the way she talked about relationships
1: in this book. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think she was mirroring some of what she experienced as a kid?
2: Well, I think a lot of us do, don't we? You know, whether we're conscious of it or not at the time, I think a lot of, you know, the. there's that old, you know, saying that, you know, women date their fathers, men date their mothers, but I also think there's something deeper to you know that the way we learn relationships as a child. Now you know, and I, I used to be a social worker, so if I start getting too like nerdy on all this stuff, please stop me. But you know, there's you know our childhoods follow us for the rest of our lives, for better or worse. And the you know, the more we learn to integrate that into who we are as a whole person and accept the things and incorporate that into how we see the world now in healthy ways, um, you know, the better off we are. But. You know, there's no doubt that the way you learn relationships from your parents, from the adults around you, from your siblings, from those first relationships, whenever you start dating or whatever you view dating as, that stuff is going to color how you interact. It's going to color your self-worth and what you expect out of people. And so if she has this relationship with her mother where she's used to being put down, she's used to being forgotten, to being not appreciated, not shown uh, physical manifestations of love, then she is going to be seeking that same relationship, whether she's aware of it or not, in the relationship she chooses romantically. You know, it just all manifests. And, you know, it sounds like maybe she's way more aware of that now through all of her, you know, therapy experiences and choosing a different partner. But it just kept kept being repeated over and over. And it's like that friend you have that keeps going back to the person who is hurting them. And you're Mm -hmm. like, can't you see it? Can't you see it? And you get this sense through the book that she just couldn't see it.
1: The parallels between the book Pure Land by Annette McGivney, who I interviewed in the last episode of She Explores, and All That Glitters were pretty glaring. I read the two books back to back. Since we covered repressed memories and childhood trauma in the last episode, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it here. But just like Annette, Margot was manifesting a lot of the trauma that she didn't remember experiencing in her daily behavior. It wasn't until she remembered the trauma that she was able to work through it and move forward in her life. One of the ways Margot coped was through substance abuse and then climbing. I'm curious about and someone else brought this up in the adventure grapes group as well, the fact that like climbing can be just as addictive as substances. Like, in what way is it a healthier, you know, addiction than some of the other things that Margot experienced in her life?
3: Yeah, and I actually notice a huge correlation between people who, for whatever reason, gravitate toward intense experiences. Um, You know, I work and climb with a fair number of people who, like, have some in their past. (laughs) If it's drugs or just kind of gnarly, intense, big things. And I think one of the kinder ways to think about that is that Intense people are drawn to intense things, right? Gritty, real, visceral, unvarnished, honest, adrenaline-y. And climbing is, I mean, who are we to say it's healthier? (laughs) It's not necessarily Mm. safer. It's not necessarily easier on your friends and family. But um, it's certainly more societally acceptable. Is it? (laughs) Yeah, is it? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I, I think it's celebrated. I think... You know, there's a lot of like credit card ads that have sweeping vistas and landscapes and a lot of like, I I do think we idealize it a little bit as a culture.
2: But there's also this like image of climbing that it's only one thing and this kind of goes back to that conversation that sort of binary conversation of are we out t- in the mountains to conquer them or to have these like intense emotional experiences. Right. Climbing isn't just, you know, isn't just summiting big ass peaks and it's not just doing these like dangerous ice climbs or whatever it is. There's so many different like layers to what climbing is for people. Some people never ever strap on a harness cuz all they do is boulder. Some people are only ever going to, you know, climbing's huge down in Southern California, but you wouldn't know it because people don't talk about sort of the local crags that we climb on here all the time um, because that's not sexy. It's not, it's not exciting for the outside world, I guess. But for us, it's like, hey, cool, we have this thing right here. We don't have to go to a gym. You know, yeah, there's some graffiti or whatever, but this is, this is our <laughs> joint. This is our place. But, you know, that, that's the thing, too, is that there's degrees of everything. I mean, I think a lot of outdoor sports and outdoor adventure is like, it's got to be epic and it's this and it's that. When most folks who are getting outside are not doing those things and they can still have the same experiences where, you know, you're still having an emotional connection or doing this physical thing or ha- coming away with Whatever it is, this feeling of success or companionship or community or spiritual connection—it doesn't have to be like, dude, I was up and up in Banff and it was epic.
3: <laughs> right. I think there's also a part of that in this book that you know she doesn't talk about the progression of how she learned to climb, right? <laughs> I almost sort of like missed the page where she became a world-class ice climber. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: I was, I was like, did I miss something? Is there a part of it? Yeah. <laughs> uh,
3: like, and then she went to Yuri and competed, you know? <laughs> um, and I think we don't, I mean, I agree that we don't necessarily celebrate all those in-betweens and in the spectrum as much. I think it's easy to idealize. And this probably plays into social media and sponsorships and a lot of other conversations, but, um, you know, we don't necessarily talk about how every step of the process is important and vital and, And maybe for me, that goes back to everybody has to identify why they're doing it and be clear about their own goals. And for the vast majority of people, it's not to quit their job and move into their car and become a sponsored climber. 99.9% of people, that's not the dream. So I don't know, maybe thinking carefully about what we celebrate and why and how, just how we should like digest what we hear and
1: pick our goals more deliberately. Yeah. Thinking about celebrations... What would you guys say were some of the more positive messages of Margot's book?
2: Relationships are important. You know, I think about her her relationship with Karen. When you find somebody that you feel is your equal, whether that's in a friendship or a romantic relationship, a working relationship, it, it changes how you view yourself sometimes, I think. And, you know, I really think about the importance of that friendship that she had with Karen. And not everybody has you know maybe it's easy to think like well everybody's got friends like that right but not everybody does and uh, you know that sometimes is I think where community can come in and outdoor community certainly can be really welcoming it can also feel really exclusionary depending and this could go back to some of the things we just talked about but yeah I think the idea that having somebody who understands you is, is uh, can be really good for you if you let them
1: in I love that that's well said I love that too <laughs> Um, I think for me something positive, and I I think that it was communicated in a way that was a a bit too black and white that I had a hard time a hard time digesting in certain ways. But I I do really appreciate that she grew up a lot throughout the pages, and that she I don't like to say that she came out on the other side of a really dark depression because I think a lot of people deal with depression their whole entire lives. But I really appreciate seeing some of the lightness that she found through her life. Yeah. Yeah, that's well said, too. Yeah. yeah. It was really,
3: really manic, really high ups and low downs. And I noticed that with people who do these big expeditions a lot, like there's a lot of like elated high, like technical experiences. And then people come down and they go low, 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 low. Mm-hmm. A lot of times high highs equal low lows, and that's a pretty complicated thing. That wasn't as a soundbite as Shantae's. I'm sorry, I'm still, still processing this book very much.
1: <laughs> On our theme of balance, I want to leave you with a thought Shantae had about how time in the outdoors isn't a panacea.
2: Of course, there's science now that tells us that the outdoors is good for us. We all pretty much do that intrinsically, but okay, there's science to back it up but the outdoors is not ever going to be a cure-all. It's not, you don't go climbing, you don't suddenly become a world-class ice climber and all your problems vaporize. It's not how it works. What it can help you do is have this box of tools that you can go to and that you can use to, you know, to wade through these, these things that are happening in your life or that are, are going through your mind or that you're feeling in your heart. And you know but it's never going to cure anything you don't go out there and, and live in a van and think that life is going to be better you don't go climb all of these beautiful ice cliffs and, and think all your problems are going to go away and but i do think that's important for people to come away with and realize that there's no judgment if you do also use traditional or western medicine there's no judgment if you know you go out there and you don't come back feeling like suddenly i'm perfect because <laughs> that's that's not really what happens to people
1: Thank you to Charlotte Austin and Shantae Salaber for taking the time to read All That Glitters and to talk with me about it. You can join the conversation on the Adventure Group's Facebook group. We'll link it in the landing page and in the show notes. We'll also link through to the books mentioned here, including Shantae's. Another book that came up and was heartily recommended by Shantae that's not about conquering is Blair Braverman's Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube, I've got it queued up on my Kindle. A great way to stay connected to this show and meet other listeners is by joining our She Explores podcast Facebook group. There we talk about episodes, give each other outdoors advice, trip recommendations, and share other resources. Both Charlotte and Shantae are members. If you enjoy She Explores, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Even better, let a friend know about it. Thank you to Subaru for sponsoring this episode. Music is by Lee Roosevelt, Josh Woodward, and Swelling via the Free Music Archive. Music also includes Salem by Daniel M. Peterson. Until next week, bye.